Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Heidi Ganahl is an entrepreneur, businesswoman, and nonprofit CEO, elected official, and now author. She is the founder of Camp Bow Wow, which she grew into a $100 million pet care brand and franchise. She's been on Fortune Magazine's list of the 10 most promising entrepreneurs. She's taken all that she's learned in business and in life, particularly her perspective on overcoming loss and adversity. And she's put that into a terrific book and platform called She Factor. How perfect to talk to Heidi on She Said, She Said to launch our fall lineup. Heidi, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. I love what you're doing, and I'm so proud to be a part of it. Well, we are delighted to have you. You're here all the way from Colorado, so we're delighted to have you in Washington, D.C. today. (laughs) Thank you. It's beautiful. I I expected very hot, muggy weather, but it's awesome. It's like the start of fall. Yeah. It's wonderful. These perfect September days. We get a few of those. (laughs) (laughs) It's still very hot and Colorado. We're waiting for winter to hit, but you know, I I cross my fingers that it's going to be a little while longer. I love fall in Colorado. It's awesome. So I know you guys have beautiful fall here too. Perfect. We're going to come visit you soon. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> so Heidi, you've had this amazing career and you grew your company Camp Bow Wow from basically cocktail napkin inception into this $100 million pet care brand and franchise model. But that only happened after a series of what I think anybody would consider life-altering losses. Can you talk to us about how, how Camp Bow Wow got started, how you got your, launched your entrepreneurial career? Sure. Well, I mean, I was definitely one of those kids that was always thinking up crazy big ideas and, you know, had the lemonade stand and the dog walking business. But I didn't think of myself as necessarily an entrepreneur. And so I went through college, got my degree, went into pharmaceutical sales and met Brian, my first husband, who was amazing. And he um, loved thinking up big ideas with me. And so we created this plan for our two pups, Mick and Winnie, two big rescue dogs, when we couldn't find a place that was good enough to take them when we were traveling. And we thought, this isn't brain surgery. Like, we should figure out a way to make a cool place that you can leave your dogs. About that time, one of the first doggy daycares in the Western United States opened in Parker, Colorado, right by my dad's business. And we would go watch and think, oh my gosh, this is the coolest idea. There's dogs milling around. This was back in the early 90s before anybody thought babysitting for dogs was, you know, an okay idea. So we built the business plan, added the mountain lodge look, and added some neat elements to it like boarding and training and grooming. And But we were young. We were in our early 20s. We didn't have a lot of money or resources, maxed out on student loan debt, both from families that you know didn't have a lot of money but had a lot of encouragement. So we wrote the business plan. And about six months um, after we wrote the business plan, his 25th birthday was coming up. And my dad ran into an old family friend from Monument, the town that I grew up, named Cliff, who was a United Airlines pilot. And he had an open cockpit biplane, uh, like the Snoopy Red Baron plane, and he did air shows. And my dad thought, oh my gosh, Bayan would love to do this. He's a daredevil. So Cliff said, why don't you come down to the airport in the Springs? I'll take you up and then I'll take Bayan up and we'll surprise him. 
So they did that, and the plane did all the stunts, and then did a flyby over my folks to take a picture, and the plane crashed into the ground and killed both of them instantly right in front of my parents. So obviously my life changed dramatically at that point and uh, just you know, went into a tailspin, a bit of a tailspin, received a million-dollar settlement about three months later from the plane crash, and here you have this kid who you know, has never had money, mm-hmm. and I'm in the throes of grief, and I get this check, and I managed to mess it up in every way possible. I loaned money to family and friends. I hired an advisor who put me into all the wrong investments for that time, and so I was struggling. I remarried, um, you know, and had a baby and everything you're not supposed to do. I just, you know, made really poor decisions, but I got an amazing daughter out of the deal. So I can't say that that was a, you know, a bad decision. That was amazing. And Tori actually turned my life around and got me going. But five years later, my brother comes to me. I'm, um, I have $80,000 left of the million dollar settlement. I'm a single mom. I'm back in pharmaceutical sales and just not really happy doing what I'm doing. And he said, let's take out that old business plan for Camp Bow Wow and see if we can't get it going. So that's how Camp Bow Wow started. We did it in an old VFW hall. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's so many elements of your story that I want to drill down on. And one you talk about in more detail in the book. And I found this so interesting, completely resonated with me. You talked about the insurance settlement that you received, this large check, and that you we're so uncomfortable with receiving money. Yeah. Yeah, it was um it was so awkward. I mean, Brian and I used to kid all the time about I mean, w- he was the guy that would lay out all the lottery tickets and study like how to win the lottery. I mean, that was going to be our ticket out, ticket to, you know, do all the things we wanted to do. And I felt incredibly guilty about getting the money that way. I didn't want it. It was almost tainted. Mm. And I thought I- we wanted to make the money our own way. We I didn't want the money this way. And so I found out through my research, and later I, I started, I got my certified financial planning designation later on and decided to help people who had received sudden wealth like this right around the time 9-11 happened. So oh, wow. I ended up helping some of the families that got settlements there. And um, I found out that 75% of people who receive settlements over half a million dollars from things like that lose it within three years. Wow. For, for similar reasons. Yeah. It's just, it's very emotional. Yeah. There's a lot of guilt attached to it. And so you subconsciously figure out how to get rid of it. But the interesting thing is I made um, kind of a deal with myself that if I started Camp Bawa, my goal was to make the money back at the same rate of, you know, if I had invested it correctly, grown it well, when I sold the company, and do you know, I sold it for exactly that amount if it had grown at, you know, 7%, I had invested it correctly. No kidding. It was bizarre, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. It was pretty cool. So pivoting, you mentioned your brother was really the one who came to you and said, hey, let's get this business started. Had he always been a big believer in this concept, or was this more sort of his way of trying to and help you kind of get, get back into your life? It was more that. Um, my brother and I are very different. He's a sound engineer. He's, uh, you know, he loved hanging out with the dogs and helping me with that part of the business. But, you know, people, not so much. <laughs> so I think we fired each other three different times. We st- we're great now. Hard to work with family. <laughs> yes. Oh gosh, at one point I had 10 of my 40 team members were family members. Because we grew so fast and you just hire the people that you trust and you throw them into these positions. And we all went on this journey together. And at some point when you're big and things are happening, you're like, oh, my goodness, like 
we all need to figure out how to do this. We need to bring in some talent and that causes some chaos. But yeah, Patrick just recognized how much I was struggling and he knew this wasn't who I was or how I kind of rolled. And so he just shook me a bit and said, I'll help you. Let's do this. And it was magical. I know you talk about this in the book as well, but, but talk about what you learned from your grief and from this horrible set of experiences. Well, I think the first lesson was life can change so quickly. I mean, it can the rug can get pulled out from under you. So you better not wait around to do the things you want to do, to tell the people that you love you love them. You know, there's a sense of urgency now in my life, and it drives some people nuts how much I have to get done in a day and in this sense of, you know, carpe diem, seize the day, every day. But uh, I think that was the biggest lesson I learned. The other lesson I learned was that, um, you know, there is... um, we are bigger than ourselves. Like we have this connection to humanity, to to animals, to the earth that is um, very different. I have a very different view of it than I did before the crash. Like very, I feel so much more connected and my faith is so much stronger than it was before. And I had to really go through um, a lot of soul searching and reading and exploring to get to that point. But now I'm such a much more grounded person I have all the confidence in the world that, you know, that uh, my faith is going to get me through any troubles that I come across. Yeah, I mean, experiences like you had can really challenge your faith in a way that makes it very hard to come back from. What's your advice for somebody who has gone through something so gut-wrenchingly horrible and can't even imagine, like, how 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 to find their faith? It's one minute at a time, one hour at a time, one day at a time. And it's really, it's okay to get angry. It's okay to question. It's okay to, you know, wonder why this is happening. At the end of the day, you're probably not going to get the answer. But it does make you just give, you have to just let go of any preconceived notions about what your life's supposed to be, how it's supposed to look and resign yourself to this higher being or how things are supposed to be. And it's very freeing once you do that, though, and understanding that you don't have control. Because um, I, I had laid out my life exactly how I thought it should be. You know, we're going to have 2.5 kids. We're going to have this. I'm going to do my career. And it all went to heck in a handbasket. But now I look back and think, oh, my gosh, I've had such incredible experiences and met so many wonderful people. And... I'm very grateful for the grief and the journey that I had. It's very different than I imagined, but I wouldn't have it you know, any other way other than, oh, gosh, I miss Bayan, and he was such a fantastic part of my life. But he's still there. I still, yeah. yeah. That's really incredible. So as we pivot back to the business mm-hmm. that you launched, um, you uh, took the business and you created a franchise business out of that. Talk about why that, why you made that decision. <laughs> it wasn't very thoughtful. I didn't know much <laughs> about franchising, but I didn't have a lot of resources. I mean, I was tapped out financially. I had taken every credit card, maxed it out, home equity line to start the first two locations. And one of our clients worked for Mrs. Fields Cookies, and he said, you should franchise this. No one's franchising pet care facilities. I'm like, what? I don't even understand what a franchise is. So he took me to the International Franchise Association meeting. 
met some amazing people that became my mentors. And within a few weeks, we had all the legal paperwork done. We put a couple signs up on the counters at both camps and we sold our first franchise. And how long was this into the sort of life cycle of the business? It was in 2003, mid 2003, that I started franchising. I started the business in late 2000. So we opened the first one in late 2000, opened the second one about a year, year and a half later, and then started franchising about a year after that. Mm -hmm. But then this amazing moment happened in summer of 2005 after we'd been franchising for about a year, year and a half, and we maybe had 10 franchises. It was me and one other person running the operation. And the phone starts ringing off the hook one day. And I'm like, what the heck? Why is everybody so interested in Camp Bow Wow? Well, America Online was the big internet back then. They had three rotating stories. That's it. Everybody was on AOL. And it had this feature story was the next great franchise, Camp Bow Wow, and had a picture of me with this little puppy. We got over 3,000 franchise sales leads from that one day. My gosh. It was insane. So things just took off from there. And I think we sold 100 franchises in the next... 12 months and brought my dad in to help me with franchise sales. He's one of the best salespeople on the planet. In fact, um, my title was Top Dog, aka CEO, and so his title was Top Dog's Dad. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And so he single handedly sold, I think, 100 franchises for us. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. So you ultimately sold the business. Why did you decide to sell the business? Oh, goodness. Um, Personal life comes in. I met Jason. I got set up on a blind date. I'd been a single mom for a long time with Tori, dragged her all around to business meetings and, you know, on my journey of building the business. And um, Jason's a bit younger than me. We hit it off. We, it wasn't supposed to be anything serious, but our third date was to the Rockies Red Sox World Series game. And we got kicked out of the club section for cheering too much. (laughs) We're like, there's something here. This was meant to be, you know, who does that? So we ended up getting married and having um, Holly. He wanted to have a couple more kids. And Tori was, I think, 12 or 13, had Holly, and then who's 10 now. And then he said, let's have one more. And he was supposed to be a stay-at-home dad. He, God love him. He's a great dad, but he, that was not, he was not cut out for that. <laughs> so I get pregnant. He's stay-at-home dad. And then I end up having twins. Oh. And so I have three Double kids. Blessing. Yes, three kids <laughs> under the age of three. He's off doing barbecue, cooking barbecue all over the country, which later became his business. And um, I just couldn't do it all. And so I thought, you know, I'm a creator. I'm an entrepreneur. I loved launching the business and growing it, but I need to take it to the the next level. I need some folks to come in that are better at managing the day-to-day operations. Was that hard to come to terms with? Because this was your baby, or one of them. (laughs) Yeah, one of them. (laughs) One of them. Uh, Lots of furry babies. Yeah. It was hard in one aspect that I wanted it to land in really good hands and continue to grow, but I knew in my heart and soul that it was the right decision for me, that I had done what I wanted to do, and I had launched it, and it was time to put it in hands of someone who could take it to the next level. Yeah, well, you made it incredibly successful, not just launched it, but Thank it was you. a huge success. It was a great journey. It was so fun and, and ups and downs all around. It, there were so many different elements to the business. One of my favorite parts about Camp Bow Wow is one that we don't talk about very much, which is the Bow Wow Buddies Foundation. And we launched um, the foundation that goes with Camp Bow Wow Charity in 2007 with a crazy trip to Greek to go Greece to go work with animal rescue workers over there um, to help them. There aren't formal animal welfare organizations there. And a friend we had, who I'd run into 
told me how bad dogs had it there. So we went, we rescued 27 dogs, brought them back and found them homes. We called them Greekies. <laughs> it was this crazy journey. Um, but anyway, that launched the, the Charity Foundation. We ended up raising over a million dollars for canine cancer research. And we rehomed over 10,000 dogs over 10 years with the foundation by fostering them at the camps for local rescues. So I'm just as proud of that as I am selling the business and, you know, seeing that bank balance the next day so yeah yeah. so you sell camp bow wow you've pivoted into other things you've written this terrific book and launched this great platform called she factor there's a lot of uh information that's out there about personal development for women and girls what's unique about she factor well, I think it's unique because it, it came from um, my own experience with my daughter, Tori. When she graduated from college, she came home for spring break her senior year. She went to University of Oregon. She's a duck. And she came home. She's a dynamo. She got a journalism degree. And she's like, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. I'm like, what? You're a senior year of college? You're <laughs> deciding this? I'm like, go get a job. She's like, where do I want to work? What kind of company? How do I fit in working out? How do I fit in the boyfriend? I, you know, the list goes on and on. And I thought, all right, let's settle down. Let's figure out if I have any tools or resources that I can help you with. And I started to think about what I, how I built my young leadership team at Camp Bow Wow. And we used an archetype system, like an anagram, disc, strength finder. So I created one of those for her to do, mm-hmm. had her do some of those. And then I put her into a game for her life. We used gamification at Camp Bow Wow. And it teaches you to set goals, hold yourself accountable, but in a playful, fun way. So those two things worked really well. And so she started talking to her friends about it. And at the same time, I got asked to write a book about my journey building Camp Bow And I thought, you know, I don't want to write that book, but I want to write a book to my 20-year-old self, like what I would do differently. So that's how She Factor was born. And it just evolved into this really cool platform slash movement for young women about how to create an authentic life that's really fun and joyful and isn't the one that's prescribed to you by everyone that thinks they know better. You talk about, I think, is there nine different dimensions that yeah. you talk about in the book? Give us a little snippet of those. Which sure. which of those like resonates with you the most? Well, one thing that I realized talking to these young women around the country is that they don't, they're not siloed in just work like I think we were somewhat growing up. They want a holistic experience. They want all of the parts of their life to balance. So we created what's called spheres. So there are nine spheres. There are all the different parts of your life that you can focus on. So one is folk, which is family and friends. Mm -hmm. One's finance. Future, which is your job. Fuel, which is food and fitness. Faith. Freedom, which is being a good citizen. Fashion, because that's important to every girl, I think. (laughs) Uh, Probably missed a couple of them, but you get the gist of what we're talking about. And the important thing is when you read the book and then when you you download the app and you go into the game, you have to prioritize. You can't be focusing on every part of your life like we typically do as women. So it has you rank the spheres mm-hmm. for the whatever time you want to focus on a goal, a month or a quarter. And then it lets you set goals for the top four. That's it. <laughs> and you set goals. And then every week you score yourself on how you're doing. And it teaches you how to set SMART goals. So if you know those of us in the business world know mm-hmm. SMART goals, you know um, specific, measurable, attainable, um, time-oriented. The important part is holding yourself accountable. Every week you give yourself a score, it measures it out, it, it ranks or it uh, weights it and spits out a number and that's your she factor. And it's a common language to use with your peers, with your friends, with your SEAL Team 6, which is your small group of people that are going to hold you accountable and really push you. Uh-huh. 
And it's your own score. So there's no judgment. It's just like, last week, I had a great week. I was an eight. This week, not so much. I'm a two. Like, I'm not hitting any of my goals. So um, one thing I've known or I've learned in the business world, but also I apply to my personal life, is that, you know, you have to be intentional about where you put your time, your talent, and your treasure. And this teaches young women how to do that. How do you help them deal with this notion of self-doubt? Like on those weeks where you're a two, and let's face it, everybody has those weeks, right? A one or a two, maybe even a little more. It could be this week. (laughs) (laughs) How do you you advise them for dealing with those low points? It's all about forgiveness and just, you know, find some humor in it recognize that you know everybody cannot be a 10 all of the time that would be kind of a disaster honestly you'd be exhausted and And not very interesting right that's true (laughs) that's true and so it's just about being intentional about where you put your energy where you put your focus and then holding yourself accountable so you know if you're a two then maybe you're spread too thin maybe you're working on too many things maybe you weren't intentional about focusing on your goals So I think that's the biggest lesson I've seen resonate with young women is, you know, I'll give them a vision board and it'll have all nine areas and I'll say, just write one bullet point about something you want to do in each little bubble. They're like, oh my gosh, I've never thought about this. Well, oh my gosh, I didn't think about setting a goal for my faith or freedom. Like how do I get involved, you know, as an, an engaged citizen? And so it gives them this template for how to create a life that they love, that's authentic, that's balanced. And that they get to decide, you know, what's important, what's not, and where to focus their energy. Yeah. You're getting uh, direct feedback from the young women who are using Mm -hmm. your tools. What are you hearing from them? Well, you hit on something with the lack of confidence. Um, Boy, it's all over. It's surprising to me. There, I mean, we, we live in the greatest time in history for women. We have so many opportunities. It's almost paralyzing. Hmm. And I think young women feel um, like indebted to the women that came before them to do all they can and make the best they can be out of their lives, which is a bit overwhelming. Hmm. It's teaching them that that's a gift. It's not, it's not a requirement that you go out and do certain things. You have this gift that you can create a life that you love. You can stay home with your kids. It's okay. It's a great thing. You can go out and have a career. It's okay. It's a great thing. And also teaching them that this whole idea that we can do it all is BS. It doesn't work. And it's okay. It's, it's okay. It's messy. And just falling in love with that kind of idea that life is messy. And it's still lovely, though. Yeah. And it can still be fantastic and fun. And then learning how to fail. Like, goodness gracious, when did failing become so you know, serious? And you know, you're not allowed to take risks or try things because you might fail. Right. I'm sure you would agree that all of us look back at our lives and the pinpoint the times when we failed were probably the most important times for teaching us the most important lessons in our life. Yeah. And knowing that you can recreate. It's yeah. not It's not the end of the world, that it is a data point. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to, to assess where you're at, figure out why you failed, and pick up the pieces and move on and move in a different direction. And uh, if there's anything that's a pattern in my life, it's it's learning learning to fail and learning to turn that around and, and make it part of your story. Yeah. One of your chapters and one of the factors you mentioned is the folk 
chapter, mm-hmm. <laughs> not folk life, but your folks, yes. <laughs> your, your people, your family. And family and the people around you can be such a tremendous source of support and inspiration. But sometimes for many people, they can also be a factor that holds them back or that maybe doesn't give them the kind of support that they need to really have that big dream or that big vision realized. Talk about how you talk to these young women as it relates to the folk factor. Yeah, I think that um, we all take our family's opinions and friends' opinions very seriously, very to heart, even if we don't want to admit it sometimes. <laughs> and I think what we're trying to do is teach young women that it's okay if you have a different opinion. It's okay if you have a different idea about how to live your life. You can still honor your parents and your family's wonderful contributions to your life and to helping you get where you are. But at the end of the day, you've got to honor who you are and how you roll, which is why the silhouettes are important to figure out what archetype you are mm-hmm. so you can understand how you operate. And the, and the silhouettes, that's the, that's the self-assessment tool, yes. right? Yes. When you go into the app or when you first enter the book, it talks to you about these seven silhouettes, um, seven different types of personalities. I'm a dreamer, so I'm very, I'm a big thinker. I'm very visionary. But if you ask me to dig into the details of a financial statement, that's not very fun for me. I can do it, but it's not fun. I'd rather create a strategic plan for the next 10 years. But there are people who love the weeds and, you know, really get into the details. There are artists who are directors who are very rebellious and don't want to be boxed in. My husband's a director. So you can see when you look at a dreamer and a director how, you know, I've got these big ideas and I'm like, uh, and he's like, don't box me in. And you get these little dynamics, whether it's your team member or, you know, a family member. So I think that's important um, to understand how people operate, especially when they're family and friends, but also to honor their opinions. But then if you surround yourself with like your SEAL Team 6, mm-hmm. people who are going to tell you the truth and really be authentic with you, it's not likely a family member that's going to be your SEAL Team 6, you can get a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And so it's just learning to listen to the different perspectives and then honoring who you are and where you want to go and what your passion is. How do, you, how do you figure out how to create your SEAL Team 6? Who, who are those people? They're not your family. They may, not, may or may not be your closest friends. Who, who are they and how do you pick them? What's your advice there? Think about the people around you that will tell you the truth. I mean, who is the person? I have a best friend who basically will tell me, I mean, she'll tell me anything. You know, you look terrible today. Stop doing so much. Quit doing this with your... And you know they're going to be real. That's your SEAL Team 6. But you need different perspectives too. So it might be an old teacher. It might be a coach. It might be one of your best friends. It might be your mom or dad. Probably not. It's a little too close. They'll have a different perspective. So it's really about people who will be honest, authentic with you and also understand where you want to go and what you want to do with your life so they'll honor that and in the advice that they give they'll do it from that filter i love this notion of you talk about a net promoter score we Mm -hmm. talked about that a second ago and you mentioned that it creates a common language to use with mentors and peers and even your boss why is that important and why is it important in particular as we think about how we interact in the workplace, men and women, and you know, getting more women promoted and sort of understanding mm-hmm. that we oftentimes encounter obstacles a little differently. Talk about how that net promoter score is helpful. Yeah, I think it's, it's important that we have 
um, a language to be able to communicate where we are. And so if you're having a rough week and you're at a four and your boss thinks everything's going along fine, but you could say to your boss if they understood the she factor score, I'm having a rough week. I'm a four. I'm, I'm just not hitting on all cylinders. Don't you think that, that you would get a different reaction then from your boss if you're not getting a project done or you're not, you know, you have to stay home for a day? It's all about communication and connecting with people where they are. And a lot of young people just don't feel heard. This isn't anything new. This is from the centuries. And so it gives them a way to um, articulate that in a way that any of us that are running so fast and hard around them, a boss, a mom, uh, you know, a friend, can understand it and, and stop and say, okay, I get it. Or, you know what? I'm a nine this week. I feel great. <laughs> and the, your boss might say, oh my God, I didn't even recognize all the stuff you've gotten done. That's fantastic. And celebrate with you. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I hear from our men counterparts across the country as I launched She Factor because they're like, hey, what about me? Can I be involved? I'm like, yes, we welcome men into the conversation. We have to have our men in the conversation is they don't always know what to do. They want to help. They want to, you know, be great um, champions for us, but they don't know how to do it. And so the She Factor scoring helps them with that, helps give them a language. Mm -hmm. And then this idea that just because we're meeting together as women in our squads or, you know, in the She Factor community, we're just figuring out how to better communicate what our needs are to help them help us be successful. Does the model work for men as well as women? I mean, I know it was designed for women, but yeah. does it work for men? I don't know yet. I haven't <laughs> talked to a lot of guys that have done it. I think they're a little scared off, but I have gotten the question, like, when are you doing the heat factor? Right. <laughs> like, uh, it'll come. I have a son, so I'm very, you know, yeah. I'm just as worried about him. But let's. it's, it's a special moment in time for women right now. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I started writing this before everything happened with the Me Too movement and um but I did recognize that with Tori launching her life, that it was a different time and that they needed different tools and tactics and resources to be successful in life. And we work so hard to get them across the finish line with a degree. And then we're kind of like, OK, have fun, have fun, go out there, be successful. It's not that easy anymore. No, it's not. So as you were uh, launching the franchise component of Camp Bow Wow, you encountered the government. Um, not uh, that you hadn't encountered the government before, <laughs> obviously, you've been paying taxes all these years, but you encountered the government in a way that really served to spark and inspire you ultimately. Um, now, <laughs> you've run for office and won. How did you do that? Well, I think it's all about common sense conversations with people. I mean, one of the things that I talked about on the campaign trail was how I came to run. And how I came to run was this unelected bureaucrat at the Department of Agriculture in Colorado decided that we could only have one person for every 25 or 15 dogs in the play yards. I'm like, really? You care about how many dogs we have in the play yards with our staff? And how do you come up with these numbers? Well, we just think we know best. And that was my first, well, that was my second exposure. The first exposure was when we got kicked out of our first location for zoning, for not having the right conditional use permit. The government just made it so much harder than it had to be for a young gal to start a business, doing what she loved, offering a service to people. You know, if we're not taking good care of the dogs, the free market will take care of us. Mm. Uh, We'd be out of business. And we had like 100 locations when this happened. We had an incredible safety record. I just said, why do you get to decide this? And I started to understand 
you know, how government can come in and really squash the creation of jobs and opportunity for people. It broke my heart and it made me mad. And so I started to speak up and I got involved with Job Creators Network, which is uh, Bernie Marcus, the founder of Home Depot, started it. And it was just this light that lit up in me. I loved it. I love talking about public policy, which is so weird. I was like, oh, I had never imagined I would like this. And started to get more and more involved in protecting small business and creating jobs and talking about how wonderful the free markets are and capitalism is. So on the campaign trail, I talked a lot about this idea that students are starting to be drawn to socialism and they're starting to make you know entrepreneurs and business people the bad guys. And it, it really wasn't okay for me. So I talked about that on the on the campaign trail. I also talked about how expensive college is. Mm. It's ridiculous. And it's squashing opportunity for so many young people around the country. And that resonated with people. But I was also just real. I had never run for office before. I ran against someone who was a very experienced politician. She'd been the Speaker of the House in Colorado. And just you know, typical political campaign. And we were out of the box. I mean, we had a puppy in our ads because it can't bow wow. I think the dogs got me a lot of votes. But uh, <laughs> just took a different angle at it, but was just real and had good conversations with people, very honest and open. And it worked. We won by 55,000 votes, and which was, I think, about 2%. So it was close. It's It's been a really an interesting and um, meaningful journey being a regent at CU and being in politics. You know, we talk a lot about um, encouraging women to run for elected office. That can be a big leap for a lot of people. And oftentimes it takes asking a woman, you know, three or four times, you know, really you should consider running. Oh, no, not me, not me. (laughs) (laughs) What, what, What made you ultimately decide to throw your hat in the ring? I love my country so much. And I love the state of Colorado. And I've been so blessed to live the American dream. I mean, it's just the quintessential story. I mean, and I I feel like I have to pay it forward and protect that American dream for my kids, your kids, our kids. It's going away. It can slip away so quickly. And it's just breaking my heart. I, we've got to do something to turn this around. And if I don't put up my hand my hand up, who who's going to? Right. And so as hard as it is, as challenging it is, as it is to wake up in the morning and see what they said about you on social media, when you think about who else would be there if we weren't and who's going to protect free markets and free speech and this amazing experiment that is America, we all have to be in this game. It's yeah. time. It's go time. You mentioned criticism um, that you get from trolls and and others, right? Especially as an elected official. How do you deal with that? I've had to grow a thick skin. For someone who cares so much about what people think, I find myself in politics. I'm like, really? This is like the most bombastic time to be in politics possible. But the mission is so much more important. And saving our country and saving the American dream is so much more important than anything any troll can say online that I just brush it off. And I think about the higher mission and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I just, I care so much about keeping that opportunity alive and giving people a hand up instead of a hand out. I just think helping people find their passion and their purpose and, you know, doing hard work because they love it instead of, you know, having to do it, I think is the way we get people back on track. 
Heidi, we ask everyone who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, or a mantra. Mm -hmm. Um, You've given us a lot of great material and advice and perspective already, but if you had to boil it down to just one thing that's your North Star, what would that be? I think it's pretty simple. It's the golden rule. Just treat people as you would want to be treated. And that would that would mend so much in society. And it creates great business relationships and personal relationships. And it's just so important to keep that at the front of your mind. Yeah. Such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. And I, I just so enjoy what you're doing. And I'm going to be watching and cheering you on. Thank you. As am, as am I for you. <laughs> it's really great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can learn more about Heidi and the She Factor on our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com or follow us as well as Heidi on Instagram. You can follow us at She Said She Said with Laura Cox Kaplan. I'll be posting show notes from today's visits and they will include links to Heidi's website, the She Factor, as well as links to the book and some photos from today's visit as well. And remember, here at She Said, She Said, you'll always find insight, inspiration, and amazing women like Heidi who are having a positive impact on the world every single day. Thanks so much for listening. 